Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Charlene Nemeth talking about the importance of being the voice of dissent in your teenager's life and the science that shows your teenager is going to hate you for it. Charlene is a professor at Berkeley and the author of the book, In Defense of Troublemakers, The Power of Dissent in Life and Business. She studies dissent and conflict and the ins and outs and surprising benefits of criticism and argumentation. We are going to be talking with Charlene today about her work on dissent. Do you feel like you have too much dissent in your house? Maybe you don't feel like there's enough dissent or like you have the wrong type of dissent. Well, we are going to dive into all of that and more, give you a look at the benefits of dissent, how to do it in the right way, dissenting respectfully, and how to teach your teenager to also be a voice of dissent within their own peer group and in their own life, sharing their ideas and helping their friends and classmates avoid groupthink and the risky shift. All that and a whole lot more is coming up on the show today. Charlene, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. You research troublemakers and dissenters, and um, you've been doing this for quite some time now. What got you into this field of study? I'll try to make it succinct if I can. It was a bit of a journey, in all honesty, but I think, you know, interestingly enough, it does play back a little bit to what we were talking in the prelude to this conversation, uh, in the sense that I think there are certain values that you have that you grow up with. And um, they actually come back to, to guide a lot of decisions in life. But I think what happened is that it was literally, I remember this, a single lecture in a social psychology course, and it was on brainwashing. And it, it, they had uh, interviews with uh, men who were returning from the Korean War. And they had, uh, there had been some very astute, uh, cruel, but astute mechanisms for essentially isolating the men from one another, because basically if you break trust and you're isolated, then there were guys who would just literally crawl up and die in their beds. I, I mean, wow. it became clear the power that people had over one another and the influence we have on one another rather than being our independent, isolated, self-contained people. And that lecture stuck with me. A professor put, uh, put an arrangement together where I was in Oxford for a year doing research with a man who had a lot of impact. He was um, an Eastern European Jew who figures kind of heavily in, in, uh, in the mentors that I've had. Uh, and uh, he spent five years in a prisoner war camp, not a concentration camp, luckily. He lost his whole family to the Warsaw Uprising, da-da-da-da-da. 
he really had a sense of major issues in the world in which social psychology could speak to them if we were just smart enough about how to do it. And that, that year changed everything. And through him, I met a, a, another, it turns out Romanian, but who became extremely famous in Paris uh, and, and throughout the world. The two of them were the founders of the European Association. So, I mean, I really lucked into the wow. Europeans, but these were Renaissance men. They worked in, in little niches. Okay. And so basically at the end of that, I decided to then finish my PhD. I did it at Cornell. And then what do you do when you have a PhD? You start teaching. So then I taught at the University of Chicago and the University of Virginia. I think throughout all this, what I'm really getting at, is kind of a long way around it, but I think throughout all of that, I was searching for something that gave me that passion I felt in that first lecture when I was an undergraduate. Mm. And it really had to do with this power of influence of people over one another. And these were two individuals who kind of understood influence and they understood power, but they also had deeply seated values uh, that really cared about the underdog. And it was not in vogue in my field because influence was equated with, was pers with persuasion. So I always, I've always had an interest in law, but I was always interested not in winning so much, but in making sure that the group made the best decision. So I didn't, so if I was working and I did some consulting for about 10 years, it, you know, and I'd help them win the case, if I, other, you know, if I took, if I took it on, but where my heart really was, was that I really cared whether or not the jury made the right decision. And that is a much more subtle and complicated thing to, 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 uh, uh, to think about, but it permeated my work because while I was studying a lot of influence and most of that was about conformity. So what you began to realize is the power of numbers. So hundreds of studies, and it is a major, major phenomenon that lasts. And that's why it's a business model for a million different companies is that it's really based on the fact that when you have people, even very few in agreement, is that they can tell you blue's green and you think it's green. Right. Uh, they can, you will literally make judgments that belie not only facts, but what your own senses tell you, and which if you were in a control group, you'd make no mistakes about it all. And in that kind of uh, context, everything was seen as the best you could do is be independent, namely to hold back on, on the conformity that could take you to error. And I think what I learned through those two men in many ways was a mindset that basically said, you don't have to at best suffer the slings and arrows and hope you don't get swallowed up in, in error, but that you can actually have an authentic differing view in which you present it and which you can have impact. But I think where, where the important aspect was is that in the beginning, I spent a lot of years studying how minority views could prevail, namely how they could persuade. And it's a very different form. So if you start out in the minority, the way you persuade and the way you need to persuade is very different than if you're in the majority. It's much harder, takes longer, and you have to really have a, a, a very good persuasive style. Okay. okay However, what you find is that many times your impact is not public or immediate. It's latent. It's more like you've had impact, but nobody's going to admit to it. And in the meantime, uh... you're going to be, you're going to be smacked around, you know, and I'm here to tell you that uh, I, I can't give you the good news that everybody's going to think you're courageous and embrace you. They're not. 
if because people don't like it when you challenge their views, basically. Right. So, I mean, that's kind of a cautionary tale in what to expect. But I think where the work took a turn for me that became important in the context of my even personal history is that recognizing the latent influence of minority viewpoints of dissent, really, of bucking that majority opened up the possibility that you had impact on their thinking in a way that would not be obvious and would not even be triggered by their actual change of attitude. What we find is that what dissent does, and even when it's wrong, that's the beauty of it, is that even when you vary whether it's right or wrong, even when it's wrong, it stimulates thinking that if you could train somebody is what you train them to do to make good decisions. They actually search for more information on more sides of the issue. They consider the cons as well as the pros. They consider alternatives. They evidence more creativity in problem solving, and they actually make better decisions. Our listeners are parents of teenagers and a lot of times they feel like they have a lot of dissent happening in their households and uh, arguments and criticisms and um, and a couple troublemakers as well. So um, I wonder uh, in this book, you know, you kind of make it seem like maybe the parent's role is being the voice of dissent and that um, having actually some dissent in uh, arguments in your household might be a good thing. Get your teenagers thinking more deeply about their decisions um, and all of that kind of thing. So where, uh, how do parents make sense of this? Uh, what do we do about all this fighting? Um, and uh, how should we be thinking about it? Well, you ask the simple questions, right? <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting take that you have on, on how uh, parents would take those messages and essentially, in their own behavior, use it to stimulate their children. And it's actually an aspect I hadn't considered, but it's an interesting oh, okay. one. Okay. Well, because the peer group, in my estimation, is really kind of what you write about as being kind of unanimous. Like, you know, the peer group of the teenager has really similar views a lot of times and, um, and behaviors and habits and ways of thinking. And so uh, it does strike me that a lot of times you as a parent are that voice of dissent. That's right. Parents might need to be a counter to the kind of conformity that their children are getting from the outside. I will just make one aside is that I recently gave my six and a half year old granddaughter uh, a a book about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which we read together, Mm. who was a classic minority. Okay, Uh, I mean, she was left handed at a time when you were forced to to be right handed. Uh, She was Jewish, she was female, she was a ton of stuff. And, and she was also a Supreme Court, you know, mega uh, person. Anyway, when I gave it to her, I kept thinking, what have I done? Because she really took to the book. She remembered mm. every aspect. I could tell that she embraced the fact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was different. And that mm. it's not that she became problematic or, or, or argumentative, but that she became known for being an authentic voice. And she'd wear her collar when she planned to disagree. And so uh, when I gave my, when my granddaughter liked this so much, 
I then bought her one of the little collars you can get for like 10 bucks, okay? And it has a gavel with it. And as soon as she got it, she put the collar on and she's walking around. I disagree. I disagree. <laughs> and I thought, oh, her parents are going to kill me, okay? And yet it, it didn't take on that form. But I think what the message did come through is that all of us feel we're different in some way. That may seem yeah. like irony. You think like, how can we all feel different? Most people feel troubled by that, which is why a lot of people rush to fit in at all costs, sometimes at great costs. And I think learning that having a different viewpoint and that that's okay, and it's even good and has value, is something that you want young people to learn very early. Now, you have to also make a distinction between have, having an authentic view and voicing it. You don't have to say everything that you think, but it's important that you don't get mixed up in your own mind that it's, it's something more than a judgment call, that there's something necessarily wrong with you because you hold a different viewpoint. The other thing, uh, again, back to your, your, your point or your question really, is that I, I think it's an interesting notion, which I hadn't thought of really, is that if parents show dissent, it could actually get the children to at least complicate their thinking about this. Because what the research is really showing is that what the dissent does, it opens up your mind to options. It doesn't give you the answer. What it does is that yeah. it, it frees and stimulates the mind, which means right. you break from the confines of, of the majority. Because the majority, what all of our research, I mean, I talk about the positive aspects of dissent. It's a negative part to the conformity. When you're around people who are all in agreement, your mind actually closes. You actually search for information that corroborates mm. what they believe so that you can join. You start looking at only the pros of that position, not the cons. All the reverse yeah. of what I said earlier in terms of what the research shows. So there's a lot of reasons for the dissent in part because it liberates you. And, and I hadn't thought about it in the context of parent-child, but I think that's an interesting idea, but underscoring it which I think personally is important. I think if a parent were just to be a real pain in the, in the butt, okay, and, and just like, I disagree with this and here's how, no, how it is. That's wrong. Yep. That, that, that won't work. That's not going to oh, stimulate okay. Because that's a usage of power, which will actually shut the child mm. down, you know, which has, a, I'm right and here's how you ought to do it. Because I see. Even as a parent, we lecture too much. I still do it. Mm. Yeah. You, you know, we were, I think the, the better way to do it and it's hard for parents because we take care of them from the time when they can't feed themselves. Yeah. But it's hard sometimes to realize a child is growing up and has adult thoughts. And you need to treat them at some level as adults. That doesn't mean you let them do whatever they want. But yeah. I think you talk to them differently when you respect their thinking. And so when you're disagreeing, remember, you're also giving them something to model. And what I'd suspect is that what you want them to model is that you can respectfully disagree. Yeah. These, all of the research I told you about, and again, I won't go through all the nuances about it, but it comes down to that it only really works when that, authentic, when that view is authentic, when the dissent is something you really believe, even if you're wrong. But if you really believe it, that has enormous stimulating power. I mean, who's going to ignore a martyr, even if you think he's crazy? But the fact right. he put his life down, the fact he's putting himself out there is a yeah. powerful statement of courage. And people, they may not like you, but they think you're courageous. 
And so there's a lot of aspects to this, but I would suspect in the context of parent-child is that for you to say, look, I don't agree with your friends and let me tell you why. And so, and don't talk from authority, but more like, I want you to understand this. Uh, there's this aspect mm. or what, or get them that book in which you let them kind of read on their own. And maybe you read with them. Maybe you become yeah. a vehicle for discussion. It's easier said than done because we're all tired and we all sometimes just say, look, just do what I tell you to do. And, do <laughs> okay. and so, I, you know, I, 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 none of these things are easy, but I think that's a very interesting possibility. And actually it might really create bonds, which by the way, I find easier as a grandparent than I certainly did as a parent. I mean, I'm still inclined a little bit with my own children who are 39, 38 and 40 um, to think I can protect them and they don't want that. Uh, so, I mean, we have to, a lot to learn as parents to kind of open up, which is which is separate from what I thought you were going to ask. And that's if they're descending in and out of season and they're just becoming uh, a, a pain and disrespectful. And they yeah. think they have to say no to everything you say uh, or they have to challenge you at every turn. Chronic dissenter. Yeah, well, that's that's a separate issue. And that's not authentic dissent. That's that's mm. a, a reaction against control. Okay. I mean, I think that's a separate discussion. And I, I wouldn't yeah. that mixed into the notion of the importance of having a differing viewpoint or the importance of having a, a minority viewpoint or in many ways, yeah. the notion of being different, which comes together with having a minority viewpoint, because not only do you worry that you're not right, you worry that you don't belong. And you worry that you're going to be rejected. And those, even you could, I could give you a hundred studies telling all that. That bottom line is, is that that's what makes you conform. That's what keeps you confined. And I think when people begin to realize that they can be accepted, that they can have different views, which by the way, you also need to teach your child. They don't need to express every view that they have that's different. Now, I have to learn that sometimes because I, you know, you still sometimes go in like a bull in the china shop. And that doesn't really work. So it's not like this is without an art to it. But I think it's important that the person themselves have a sense that they know what they know. Yeah. And because all that research, I, I look at the positive of that the dissent is liberating. It makes you free to know what you know. It doesn't tell you what to do. It makes you free to really explore and to not be in the confines of the majority viewpoint. It also stimulates thinking that the bottom line of all the research is that it actually stimulates you, even when it's wrong, by the way, dissent, is yeah. that you search more widely, you think of more options, you show more creativity, you make better decisions. In many ways, the, the mind widens and searches in what, what I call divergent thinking. That's a yeah. powerful, powerful benefit you give them. The admonition is you may not be patted on the head for it. Right. But it will, in fact, provide an enormous service. Dissenting is good for your teen in the long run, but also we don't like the dissenters. You cite a lot of research in here showing that we punish dissenters and try to exclude them from our group and um, rate them as low, bad, not like. So does that mean, uh, as a parent, yeah, yes, good idea, you should dissent with your child, but uh, 
sucks for you, your kid's going to hate you for it? Or um, how do those two things <laughs> play out? Um, I think there's some, I think there, there has to be an artful middle ground that a parent can find. You want your child, I think, to, to be able to think independently. That's number one. And I think to do that, they need to be aware of the kind of pressures that they have to, that sometimes send you to error. So I, I think there's a message there to beware of when everybody's in agreement. And to realize mm -hmm. is that you don't also, the other message, but this is a practical one, you don't have to say everything that you think. And that's a lesson that I sometimes still have trouble. <laughs> uh, okay. But it does mean it, what you want your child to have is to know their own minds. What happens, you see, most of the time is that they don't. When everyone around you believes something, even if it's not true, or thinks something is appropriate, people aren't capable really very much of independent thought. That conformity to error is powerful. And there are thousands of studies on this, and they go over decades and decades. I mean, this is not a trivial phenomenon. And people don't even know what they know after a while. And people are raised in particular bubbles. I mean, a lot of times right. in the book, even I talk about the bubbles that we're raised in. And when you never have dissent in there, you stay very sure of yourself and often very wrong mm. and kind of myopic in terms of the way you view the world, which is not something anybody wants. So what, to have that kind of independent of thought where you take truth where it exists, where you're able to examine it kind of intellectually for yourself in a way, means you have to be to some extent liberated from what are going to be the incredible confines of thinking that come from your peer groups in particular. And I think it's particularly painful during adolescence because you want to belong and we all want to belong. Yeah. And, and so sometimes we say things we don't believe. Sometimes we're quiet and we think we should speak up. Sometimes we walk around in fear. Sometimes we don't want to admit to fear and we become part of the crowd that dampens everybody else's freedom of thought or makes premature judgments. I mean, we could go on and on about the pros and cons of this, but I think it really becomes important to um, have some independence of thought. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're going to be a dissenter day in and day out, or you're going to be a pain in the butt whenever you can, or you're going to be constantly challenging. You have to be judicious if you want to have influence, but at the same time, you don't want to lose your own way. So there's a time to speak up and there might be a time to be silent and you, your strategies are, are very personal, but I think you don't want to lose sight of your own ability to be able to think in what, what I call divergent ways, to see multiple possibilities, uh, the ups as well as the downs, because this stuff, when, when it goes unchallenged, can be very painful and have terrible repercussions. And maybe it's sort of particularly acute during adolescence, but it, it's there throughout life. We're talking with Charlene Nemeth about how to dissent with your teen and what to do if your teen is dissenting with you a little too much. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show thing in social psychology called the risky shift was basically a set of studies that showed if you had people with a propensity for risk-taking, you put them together in a group and they just become more risky. 
here's the bottom line. If you've got a minority viewpoint, the minimal thing that you need is consistency over time in the set of beliefs that you espouse. If you start compromising and negotiating all that, you're, you're seeing a negotiate. You're not seeing as somebody who has an authentically different position. And so if your hope is to be open and to learn and to expand, that's not an easy road, particularly not as a teenager where fitting in is so important. And there's sometimes painful repercussions for being different. But when you start to realize there's value in being different is that, number one, it's independence. And it's because you begin to see that when people are following along, they're not always that happy. They're just glad that they're inside rather than outside getting killed. Okay. Right. You also learn that you're stronger than you think you are. You also learn that you can sometimes, uh, maybe you aren't going to change minds, but you can get changed the way people think. And you learn to do it without being afraid and argumentative. You learn to do it with some understanding and conviction about the strengths that you bring. But I think it also means that sometimes you are different. And there are areas in which you want to embrace that for the strengths that it provides. And now I'm preaching. I understand that. But I think there are these implications, particularly for a teen, which is a painful period, um, you know, because you're really, you're really searching for some certainty. They're also wonderful to be around because they are still searching. They're not so sure of themselves. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening.